Good morning, everyone. My name is Li Shen, and I'm your scripture reader for this morning. Uh, this morning, we are reading from John chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I bring him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Lishan, for leading so, uh, reading so well for us and the team as well for leading us in a time of singing. I'm sure you're glad that we're able to sing. It's uh, the first time, I think, in a very long time that we've been able to sing together. And we don't want to take that for granted. It, it is a gift from God as you gather together uh, as a community of God's people to respond to God in song and also to hear and receive uh, from His Word. So would you join me in a word of prayer as we see God's help uh, by His Spirit to understand His Word this morning? Father, we thank you so much that this is your Word. We pray, Father, that you would open it to us this morning and apply it to our hearts in such a way that it would help us. Father, for those of us who are far from you, who are not even sure if you are real, we pray today that through your word you would draw near to us and make yourself known to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I came across a journal article uh, this week. It's an academic journal. It's called the Journal of Religion and Health, and I found it very interesting. You know, my wife is a pediatrician, and I'm a pastor. And uh, this journal, the title of the article is Religious Perspectives on Human Suffering, Implications for Medicine and Bioethics. So it felt like it brought our two worlds together. The main authors, who are either a doctor or a scientist, they said this, the task of modern medicine is generally a creed to be the promotion of health the prevention of illness, and the relief of suffering. But then it goes on to say, some question whether medicine can or should aim for a world without pain, sadness, anxiety, despair, or uncertainty. Now, you may think that's odd, but this is the reason why. They felt that in certain circumstances and in certain literature, suffering may be understood as something of value. So, Maybe when you heal someone or you alleviate that suffering or you, you actually invalidate that suffering as an important element of human existence. So what they did was to explore this issue, the authors gathered together six experts from the world's faith traditions. There was a Jewish person, Roman Catholic, a Buddhist, an Evangelical Anglican, a Muslim, and a Hindu. And they came together to discuss this whole issue of suffering. Now, in their discussion, they concluded that none of the faith traditions actually saw any intrinsic value in suffering, meaning none of the faith traditions actually thought that suffering had value in and of itself. There's no value in suffering in and of itself. But each and every one of the faith traditions, although their conclusions were different, saw what they called an instrumental value in suffering, meaning that suffering can be an instrument to teach us and to grow us as spiritual beings, as human beings. And so they all agreed that medicine should play its proper role in preventing and relieving suffering, but by ethical means. Now in its conclusion, very interestingly, it also says that they thought that it was very important 
for medical professionals to listen to the faith and religious traditions and their accounts of suffering. Now, why is that? Let me quote from the journal article. While there are few parts of life that have escaped the medical gaze, perhaps it is in relation to suffering, the authors say, that medicine must be most humble. Suffering may demand both medical intervention and considered reflection. And while the former lies within medical practice, the latter is in the domain of stories, relationships, and for some, faith. In other words, what they're saying is this, medicine might be able to bring relief to suffering, but medicine in and of itself will never be able to give us meaning in suffering. In order to have meaning in suffering, we need to turn to the faith traditions in order to find that meaning. So when we alleviate suffering, but also consider reflecting on suffering, it brings together these two purposes. We're able to embrace our sufferings in a way that actually grows us. Now friends, I don't assume that all of us here are Christians, but this is a great opportunity for you if you're non-Christian to take a peek into the Christian tradition and to see what resources it has here for something that is common to every single person on earth. At some point or other, we will suffer. And what we're going to do today, the text lends itself to this, is to discover what the Christian faith tradition says about suffering. Bruce Milne, a commentator on the book of John that I've been reading, he says this, In Jesus, we have a God who enters into our sufferings and shares them with us. He enters in and he shares our suffering. So what I hope for us to be able to do today in John 19, verse 1 to 7, as John zooms in on the sufferings of Jesus as he makes his way to the cross, what I hope to do is to reflect on this suffering so that we can see how it brings meaning to our suffering. We can embrace our suffering in such a way that it doesn't crush us, but it actually grows us. So here in John 19, verse 1 to 7, there are three aspects of Jesus' suffering that we'll be meditating and thinking upon. Jesus' suffering was physical, it was emotional, and it was substitutional. Physical, emotional, and substitutional. Come with me to John 19, verse 1. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, if you've been following the sermon series, you'll be finding this quite surprising. Because in John 18, 38, Pilate has already drawn his conclusion. I find no guilt in him. Jesus is innocent. So you may be asking the question, why in the world is Jesus being flogged by Pilate when Pilate has already found Jesus innocent? Well, we get help from the parallel account of this crucifixion in Luke chapter 23. Now, for those of you who are non-Christian, you're exploring the Christian faith, there are four accounts of the life of Jesus. We call them the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And because we have four accounts of Jesus' life, we have a multi-dimensional and multi-perspectival look at the life of Jesus. We get a full sense of who Jesus is and what he did. So we're looking at one of the accounts, John. But as we compare the accounts to Luke, Matthew, and Mark, we get a fuller sense of who Jesus is and what he did here on earth. So in order to understand what was happening here, we go to Luke 23. In Luke 23, 15, Pilate says, I find nothing deserving of death has been done by him. But then he goes on to say in verse 16, I will therefore punish and release him. And there we find the purpose of the flogging. 
What Pilate was trying to do is to punish Jesus in order to appease the Jewish leaders. You say he's a troublemaker, okay, I'm going to give him this severe uh, slap on the wrist, appease you, and then release him. So that was the goal of the flogging, not to crucify him, but to humiliate him, to appease the Jews, to teach him a lesson perhaps, but then to release him. Now we have a problem, because if you go to the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark, it seems that the flogging had a very different purpose. In Matthew 27, 26, and in Mark 15, verse 15, it seems there that the flogging was to prepare Jesus to be crucified. In fact, the flogging was so severe that it reduced him to a pulp, preparing him for crucifixion. So some scholars conclude that the gospel accounts are not accurate. They contradict one another, and they're not reliable. But friends, let me say we don't need to go there. Not at all. That is only true if you assume that Jesus was flogged only once. You see, the Romans had three different forms of flogging. They were known as the fustigatio, the flagellatio, and the verberatio. The fustigatio was the least severe one. It's like a severe slap on the wrist. It's meant to teach you a lesson, not to kill you, and it comes with a warning. It's almost like, you know, you jaywalk, the policeman sees you, he doesn't write you a ticket, he gives you a warning. So that's the fustigatio, the least severe form of beating. And most likely, this is what Pilate did to Jesus. He had no intention of harming him. He wanted to warn him and then release him. So Jesus received this first flogging, the fustigatio. Now the flagellatio is more severe, but still not the most severe. The most severe form of beating that the Romans could mete out is known as the verberatio. The verberatio was so cruel, it was meant to reduce the victim to a pulp to, pre to prepare that person for crucifixion. What they would do is that they would embed fragments of bone or metal or lead into the whip. And so what would happen when they whipped the victim was that it would rip out the flesh of the victim. And many of them were left with their bones exposed and their internal organs exposed. They were half dead by the time they went to crucifixion. So what happened here? Well, in the first account, Jesus received the fustigatio, the least severe form of beating. It was meant to humiliate him, meant to teach him a lesson, but it wasn't meant to kill him. But then, we know that the Jewish leaders refused to release him. He was still, in Luke 23, 25 and 19, verse 16, delivered up to be crucified, which most likely means he then received the verberatio, the most serious form of flogging. So Jesus was flogged not once, but twice. He received the least severe form and the most severe form of flogging. And in between the fustigatio and verberatio, it says in verse 2 that the soldiers pressed a crown of thorns into his head, verse 3, and struck him with their hands. Friends, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and God himself, experienced true suffering, true physical suffering. He received one beating, 
that was less severe, and then another beating that was very severe. Now, why does this matter, friends? Why does it matter that Jesus suffered in a real and terrible and physical way? It matters, friends, because much of the suffering in this world is physical. It matters, friends, because it tells us that our bodies matter to God. Whether your physical suffering is something severe or less severe, Jesus has experienced it. And what that tells us, friends, is not only that Jesus cares for you in your suffering, Jesus shares your suffering with you. Whatever physical pain you're going through or will ever go through, we have a God who shares that suffering with you, who knows what it means to suffer. Friends, you know, in Christian theology, it's very common to say we're simultaneously saint and sinner. But friends, there's another category that comes out very clearly in the Scriptures. We're also simultaneously sufferers. And God comes to us in all three of these roles that we have in this broken world. We are saints, we are sinners, but we are also sufferers. And Jesus' physical sufferings on our behalf shows us that he doesn't just care. He shares in our suffering. He identifies in a way like no other can. So maybe you or someone close to you have just recently heard the dreaded words from the doctor. It's cancer, stage four. Or it's some other chronic disease, and there's nothing else we can do for you. Your body will waste away. Or maybe your physical suffering is less severe. Your body doesn't seem to work and function the way it used to. You wake up with aches and pains. You can no longer eat too much because you're getting older. There are injuries that you can't explain. And like it or not, it brings about a certain sense of despair in you. My body isn't as it should be. It isn't what it was. And some of us kind of just want to push that away and say it's too insignificant. God doesn't care. But in the sufferings of Jesus, we see a God who doesn't just care, but shares in our suffering. He experienced the least severe beating, a severe slap on the wrist, but he also experienced the pain of being reduced to a pulp on his way to the cross. In Jesus, friends, we have a God who cares and shares in our pain. In Jesus, friends, we are assured that God is with us and for us in our pain, that we are not alone, that there is a way of comfort and a way of relief. Joni Erickson Tata, she's a disability rights advocate. Some of you would have read some of her writings. She's 73 years old right now. But at the age of 17, she experienced a terrible accident that left her paralyzed from the shoulders down. From age 17 to age 73, she's never had the use of her limbs. Now, if you read her writings, you know that there were deep times of struggle and depression and pain. And this is how Joni tells us that the physical sufferings of Jesus have helped her. Let me read this to you. She says this in a biography. I discovered that the Lord Jesus Christ 
could indeed empathize with my situation. On the cross, for those agonizing, horrible hours waiting for death, he was immobilized. He was helpless. He was paralyzed. Jesus did know what it was like to not be able to move, not be able to scratch your nose, shift your weight, wipe your eyes. He was paralyzed on the cross. Christ knew exactly how I felt. I'm not sure what physical pain you've been going through this week or even right now sitting on these chairs, but Christ knows and shares and has felt your physical pain. In the physical sufferings of Christ, we have a God who doesn't stand aloof, but draws near to not only care, but share in our physical suffering. A friend, some of us say, well, no, my, my body is, is pretty healthy. There's no pain. But you know what? I cry myself to sleep every night. And I wake up with a sense of dread in the morning. But that's just emotional pain. Surely God doesn't care about that. That's just a figment of my imagination. That isn't real. And perhaps God doesn't care about my emotional pain. What we will see moving forward is he does. He doesn't just care and share in our physical pain. Jesus was fully human, and he experienced the deepest emotional pain that anyone can ever experience. Come with me to verse 2. It says here that the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And then in verse 3, they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Now that word struck means a slap across the face with an open palm. So what were they doing? They were not injuring him in great measure. A slap doesn't really injure you in great measure. They were mocking him. They were humiliating him. They were shaming him. You call yourself a king, Jesus? Here's your crown pressed into your head. You call yourself a king, Jesus? Here's your robe in your favorite color purple. And then here's your slap across the face. Now, I chose this text long before the Oscars. <laughs> but it's uncanny. Now, I'm not going to make any cultural uh, connection, uh, cultural analysis of that because I'll probably offend some of you. Only to say I personally think that the joke was in poor taste, but the aggression was uncalled for. But I will tell you the difference between a slap and a punch. Did you realize that when it first happened, some of the news outlets were reporting it as a punch, but it was very obviously a slap. Now, what's the difference between a punch and a slap? Well, on a physical level, a punch produces much more physical damage. But did you know that a slap is far more humiliating? Just think about it, okay? Some of you guys, okay, if you were to be punched in the face during this week, right, you come to church with, with a swollen eye, and people say, hey, what happened to you, Joel? You say, oh, yeah, you know, I just got into this fight, and just, someone just punched me in the face. It's like, wow, Joel, you took a punch. You know, there's some kind of bragging rights, right? Wow, you took a punch. 
Let's say Joe came to church and instead of a black eye, he came with like finger marks on his face, you know, reddish finger marks because someone had slapped him across the face. And someone comes up to him and says, hey, Joel, what happened to you? Is he going to say, yeah, I was kind of slapped across the face? No bragging rights. Why is that, friends? Because, friends, although a punch produces more physical damage, a slap actually produces much more emotional damage. You've heard the idiom, a slap across the face? That comes from the 1800s, and it means to offend or to insult someone. So to slap someone across the face is much more emotionally damaging than it is physical. It may not produce much physical damage, but it mocks, it humiliates, it shames, it makes you look ridiculous. You've got like handprints on your face. And that is what happened to Jesus. He was mocked, he was humiliated, and he was shamed. Not only that, look at verse 4. After the first agashio, Pilate says to the crowd, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. In verse 5, Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate said to them, Behold the man, look at him. This is the guy that claimed to be king. Ha, ha, ha. Pilate is trying to show them how ridiculous and pathetic Jesus is after the Fustagashio, after the beating, so that the Jewish leaders would release him with the crown, the robe, and having been roughed up. One commentator says Jesus looked more like a clown than a king. So friends, Jesus suffered mocking, humiliation, and shame. Have you felt the pain of being mocked? of being humiliated, of being shamed, maybe by a boss or a teacher or a family member who calls you out for your incompetence in public. It hurts deeply, doesn't it? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt them. That's not true. That's not true. Words do hurt, and oftentimes more seriously than sticks and stones. Or maybe you've been betrayed by someone or cheated on by your closest spouse or friend. I remember a scene in uh, the classic movie Love Actually. Some of you won't remember it because you weren't born yet. But there's this scene where at the end, Karen confronts her husband Henry of his infidelity. And Henry says, I've been a fool. And Karen responds, but you've made a fool out of me. And you've made my entire life foolish too. And that is the pain, friends, of being betrayed. You feel like a fool. You feel ridiculous. You feel mocked. You feel humiliated. You feel shamed. And you feel anger, friends. And friends, oftentimes anger is a way of us trying to protect ourselves from being hurt further. We're not letting that person in anymore because there's a sign of danger. So I'm going to put up the walls. I'm going to get angry. So dig deeper into your anger, friends. What's underneath it is probably a deep sense of hurt and shame. And what does Jesus' emotional suffering do for us? Bruce Milne says this, There is almost nothing we dread more than being thought ridiculous 
nothing so readily penetrates the armor of our self-esteem than mocking laughter. But that's exactly what Jesus experienced. And he goes on to say, when such moments sweep paralyzingly across our hearts and we collapse inwardly in a hidden torment of shame and confusion, and when yesterday's humiliations and shames begin to whir in our minds, there is a fellowship of his sufferings which is wonderfully releasing and reassuring. Jesus is indeed our fellow sufferer. He knows and he can share. Jesus comes to our side, not only to sympathize with us, he is our inspiration and example as we confront our pains. Does Jesus care about your pain, friends? Does Jesus care about your shame? Yes, he does. As he goes to the cross, he shows us that he doesn't just care. He shares. He shares in your physical pain, and he shares in your deep emotional pain. There is no emotional pain you will ever go through in life, friends, that Jesus does not sympathize with and empathize with. He, the high and mighty God, draws near to the saints, to the sinners, and to the sufferers. Our friends, after the physical and emotional abuse that reduced Jesus to this pathetic figure, surely you'd think the Jewish leaders would release Jesus. But they don't. Look at verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate once again says, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jewish leaders refuse. They say, verse 7, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. The law they were referring to was probably Leviticus 24, 16 in the Old Testament, where it says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. They took Jesus' claim to be the Son of God to be blasphemy deserving of death because they knew when he claimed to be the Son of God, he was claiming divinity. He was claiming to be God. But do you see the irony of the situation, friends? He really was God. He really was God. So he did not break this law at all. He was not guilty of blasphemy. And yet he suffered as a blasphemer. Why, friends? Well, friends, because Jesus' death was also substitutional. He died. He suffered and died in your place. Now, Bruce Milne, I've been following him very closely in this exposition, so just making that obvious so that you don't uh, accuse me of plagiarism. He points out that Jesus suffered and died because of two charges brought against him. Blasphemy, which we see very clearly here in verse 7, but the other charge that was brought against him was treason. They said that he was a rebel. He was an insurrectionist. We saw that in the last few weeks. He would gather people to himself and overthrow the Roman government. So he ultimately suffered and went to the cross for these two charges, blasphemy and treason. 
We've already seen that he's not guilty of blasphemy. Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. And now we've come to the conclusion, at least in the text, that he's not guilty of blasphemy either because he truly is the Son of God and God himself. He was innocent of both these charges. But yet God his Father allowed Jesus to suffer and die as a blasphemer and as a traitor. Why, friends? Because he suffered not for his blasphemy or his treason, but for our blasphemy and our treason. You see, friends, sin is blasphemy. Sin is each and every one of us falling for Satan's lie in Genesis 3 verse 5 that we can be like God, that we can run life the way we want it. That's blasphemy, friends. And each and every one of us is guilty of that sin of blasphemy. But sin is also treason. C.S. Lewis calls it cosmic treason. We've all rebelled against God's good and rightful rule over our lives. Like Adam and Eve, we have taken the fruit and we've eaten it. Genesis 3, verse 6. We are all rebels. We are all blasphemers. The only human being who ever lived who was not a blasphemer and not a rebel was Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus, fully God and fully man, suffers in your place. Not for his own blasphemy, but for yours. Not for his treason. He always did the will of the Father. But for yours. First Peter 3.18, he suffers in our place the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And in the death of Jesus, he deals with our sins, and he sets in motion the unwinding of all of our pain and all of our suffering, because the deepest root of all of our pain and all of our suffering is our sin of blasphemy and treason against a good, kind, loving God. Jesus' death was physical. He knows your physical pain, friends. Jesus' death was emotional. He understands what's happening in your heart. He sees you when you cry yourself to sleep and when you wake up with that sense of dread every morning. He is with you. But more than physical and emotional, Jesus' suffering is substitutional. It was in your place for your sin so that God can then put in place the unwinding of all the suffering and pain in your life and in the world. Michael Jensen, the evangelical Anglican contributor to the article that I cited, he puts it this way. Christ's suffering is regarded as a triumph of healing. 
not merely because it was a noble example of stoicism in the face of physical pain and personal shame, but because his suffering achieved the reconciliation of human beings to God. And so, Jensen goes on to say, the Christian life is an offering of oneself up to the providence of God as it is evidenced in the life, death, resurrection, and promised return of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's why Jesus was willing to suffer. It was for you. It was to bring an ultimate end to your sin. It was to give you, in the here and now, the resources to embrace your physical pain, to embrace your emotional pain, to embrace your relational pain in a way that doesn't crush you, but grows you more and more and more into the image of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray for all who suffer physically among us and in the world. We think of victims of war, both in Ukraine and elsewhere, and the severe physical pain they are facing right now. And today, Father, in the sufferings of Jesus, we are reminded that Jesus, you share in that physical suffering. And we are also reminded that you call us to share in the vocation of suffering and bringing relief where we can. So in our prayers, Lord, we ask you for an end to the war in Ukraine and all around the world. We ask you for an end to the suffering, the physical suffering and pain, especially among the vulnerable, the women and the children. We ask you, Father, for help for those among us and our relatives and friends who are sick, both in a chronic and less serious fashion. Help us to know today, Father, that our physical suffering is not something that you stand aloof to, but you enter into our suffering. You share it with us. You comfort us. You can empathize with us. And you give us the promise as we have embraced Christ that one day all of this suffering, physical, chronic, or less so, will come to an end. And in that, Father, we place our faith and ask you for relief today. Father, we ask for your help for all who suffer emotionally. We lift up to you the victims of abuse, both physical, emotional, and spiritual. We lift up to you the victims of those who have been gaslighted and lied at, who have been made to question their very sense of reality. We ask, Father, that you would be their truth, that you would be their reality, that you would draw near and show them a love that casts out all fears and binds up all wounds. Father, we ask for your church here at One Covenant that we will embody a culture of embracing the sufferer. Help us, Father, to bring to bear the full gospel in all that we do. Help us, Father, not just to speak words of reconciliation, but to be a reconciling people. Do not just speak words of comfort, but to be a comforting people, Lord. Shape us, Lord. We are so far from it. We need your mercy. We need your help. Help us, Father, to be a place that is safe enough for people to 
not be okay. But to know that it's not okay to stay in our own pain without reaching out for someone who can help. And as we prepare for Good Friday and Easter, Father, we pray that our hearts would be drawn in once again to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as our own hearts are drawn in, give us the courage and the faith to invite others to be drawn in together with us. We pray that this would be a season that the gospel goes out with great clarity and great compassion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.